Welcome to North Coast Calvary Chapel's audio podcast. Today we'll be continuing our series, Transforming. We hope you enjoy. So excited to be with you in part two of this series, Transforming. If you missed it last week, I'm not going to shame you or ask you to raise your hand. I would just simply encourage you to go online uh, through our app or just to our website and uh, and catch up. I think it will help you understand because I'm, I'm doing this series not only to help us grow as Christians, but I feel that it serves uh, to fill a gap that exists in the modern church today. So let's begin with the question. Um, are Christians merely forgiven? Um, there was a bumper sticker that came out when I was first a Christian and it was used all over Southern California that said, uh, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. And we actually used it as a little sign on our cash register in the little bookstore I worked in. I uh, graduated with a double major, uh, cum laude, and the job I was able to get was uh, working in a Christian bookstore for a buck 65 an hour. (laughs) (laughs) And oftentimes we would get angry customers, angry Christians that would come in and they would be so upset that the engraving on their Bible was wrong. And, uh, or they, they had asked for not to have the, the red print uh, in Jesus' words, and, and we gave them the red print, or they'd asked to only have the red print, and we gave them the black print. And I was just amazed as a naive young Christian to see Christians go ballistic <laughs> to a non-Christian, uh, to another Christian, excuse me, in a Bible bookstore over the Bible. <laughs> So the little sign on our cash register, which is something we don't have anymore, sorry for the word, um, that was a previous century, it really saved us because the sign said, Christians are not perfect, just forgiven. So it was a way of lowering expectations, you know. I, I suppose we could have lowered it far, farther and just said, you know, we just breathe air. <laughs> we just exist. But it begs the question, is that true? Are we just forgiven? Is that what the entire uh, hundreds of pages of the New Testament are all about? Couldn't we have said that in one page? Christ died for your sins, you're forgiven. Go home and go to bed. But the Bible is filled with all kinds of other stuff. And what is that? And here's a bigger question. How would you know if someone is spiritual? I'm going to just press on you a little bit because we have little pockets even in our own church here. We have pockets in our church that say you're really spiritual if you understand the complexities of doctrine. Or you're really spiritual if you get more prophecies and words of knowledge than anybody else. Or you're really spiritual if You've memorized all of Mark's sermons. (laughs) How would we know if you were really spiritual? And I'm not sure our measurement is accurate with the Bible. So are we just forgiven? Michael Green, in his book, Evangelism in the Early Church, makes 
the very clear case that the reason the early church was able to evangelize the masses of the Roman Empire in three centuries was without a word. It was their life. Their lives were so transformed in a pagan culture that they stood out. The transformation was blatant. And so that was the reason for the case. So if we're just forgiven, we've got a problem today that the world is never going to know what happens if you believe in Jesus. Or to put it more graphically, like a commercial, what happens if you drink Jesus? Is the answer actually nothing? Just forgiven, and we'll catch up when we get to heaven. What happens if you drink Jesus? And the answer in the New Testament from Jesus' writings, Paul's writings, Peter's writings, John's writings, is you begin the process of transforming. If you spend time with Jesus, you begin to look like Jesus. Not like a fool on the hill, but you begin to look like Jesus as someone in practical acts of service. So last week, we studied 2 Corinthians 3.18. And 2 Corinthians 3.18 reads, And we all, with unveiled faces, contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And what we studied last week is what does it mean to behold? What does it mean to contemplate God's glory? So the big take-home last week was twofold. One is, it's not by beholding yourself. And that's the trap. There's many, many good books in the whole self-help movement, but many others that are absorbed with you focusing on yourself. And I want to tell you as an experienced self-helper that uh, there is a maze out there that you can get stuck in trying to fix yourself by focusing on yourself. It is a bit like a dog chasing a tail. There's always going to be something new you're going to find. Uh, but the idea of you fixing you by focusing on you is not the Bible. The Bible's answer is you turning from you. If you want to find yourself, you must lose yourself, Jesus said, and focus on Jesus and what he did for you and is doing for you. The second part is that it's not through self-effort. Those, some of you are amazing people and you have an amazing will and it, it is your strength and it is your, your Achilles heel at the same time because you are the little engine that could. I think I can, I think I can. When everyone else can't, you drive them and say, well, they're slouches and I'm amazing. And so watch this. And so every time you face a problem, you're the little engine that could. I think I can. I think I can. I'm so amazing. I'm so powerful. I'm so self-effort. I'm so strong. And that is not the gospel. The gospel knows that you one day will run into a brick wall through self-effort. And it's the power of the Holy Spirit that we tap into to actually experience this change. So now this week and next week, we're going to be in Romans chapter 12, studying verse 1, and then next week, verse 2, where the second occurrence of the word transforming occurs. 
first and second Corinthians 3.18, right here. And now, in Romans 12, let me read that to you, verse 1. I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Today we're going to study, and next week, the anatomy of transformation, the process of transformation. We thought last week about the butterfly and how the butterfly transformed because it's the same word, metamorphosis, to actually change form. So a butterfly starts out as an egg. It's this little, maybe 32nd of an inch, maybe 64th of an inch size, and it's an egg that the mature monarch has laid underneath the leaf of a, a plant like a milkweed, and then out of that egg comes a butter, uh, caterpillar. Very tiny at first, and finally the caterpillar grows so big, an inch and a fourth, to now it is eating the entire plant that uh, the eggs are on and, and the other caterpillars are on. It just devours the plant until one day he climbs to the eave of a house or the top of your butterfly cage and hardens his body into a J position, and then within 24 hours, he becomes a cocoon or a chrysalis. And that chrysalis exists for about 12 days, and then one day, the chrysalis becomes really, really thin, so much that you can actually see the color of the butterfly through the shell of the chrysalis. In a period of about 45 minutes to an hour and a half, that that new form emerges, and it's a butterfly. And the butterfly takes about 12 to 24 hours to dry its wings uh, and to feel confident, and then begins to fly, and the whole process happens over again. So if you take that view of metamorphosis and now apply it to a human being, the question is, how does a human being change? And we're not claiming to know all the ways, and we're not gonna talk about all the ways certainly in this service or next week, but Paul in Romans 12 gives us perhaps the clearest view of anatomy of transformation. And so in Romans 12, if you don't like the graphics, they're just mine, so, uh, and I'm, my feelings won't be hurt. Um, we begin with God's love. And because of God's love and focused on what he has done for us, never on ourselves, focused on God, we offer ourselves. And that's as far as we'll get today. And then next week, we'll, we'll discuss the issue of stop conforming, stop being like everybody else, stop copying. We are born to model our parents. We are born to model adults around us. And then we begin in our teenage years to model our peers and our friends and copycats until we're, we're so socialized that we're asking the question, well, who are we? We're just copying everybody else. So Paul says, become a nonconformist. Become like me. And 
develop a new way of thinking. Wow, can you imagine? Are you like me where most of the problems in the world exist between your two ears? I'm telling you, especially at 2 a.m., you wake up and it's like, ah, and the, the world's problems come rushing in upon you. And, and, and there you are battling between your two ears. How can we begin to think differently about the good, the bad, and the ugly in this world that we face and emerge with new behavior where we're making new choices in life, choices that primarily are choices of love and then come back to staring at Jesus' love a little bit more and to find ourselves there all over again, growing. So that's the model that we'll be following, but there's two more things to point out. One is, it's all faith. I am not talking about works. This is not a try-harder religion. (laughs) This is trust in Jesus, the cross, trust in Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, trust that Jesus is helping us all along the way, and it's not through my effort, it's the Holy Spirit's effort. But it is going to include your will and your cooperation. Comprende? Okay, let's begin going back to verse one of Romans 12, where we read, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. Therefore, anytime you see a therefore in scripture, ask wherefore. (laughs) Wherefore is the therefore there. The therefore is there because it's a logical word that would say based on everything I've said to you through chapters one through 11, now we respond. There is a point that God expects us to respond with our will to what we've seen, what we've understood, what we believe and understand. So he says, therefore, because of all that he spelled out, uh, we need to respond. He uses the word urge. And this is the first time Paul uses in all of his epistles. He uses it 15 times, and I wonder why only 15 times. It's a strong word. It's a commander word. It's a a word of a coach or a captain that says, come on, let's go. Uh, Why only 15 times? Probably coming from himself, a religion where he was beat up with commands, (laughs) commands often that he couldn't fulfill uh, in the Old Testament, He sparingly wants to give a command. But this is a command to engage not in our will, but in, in, excuse me, in our power, but in the power of the Holy Spirit in a command to engage in what Christ has already done. So you could translate this word, ask. I ask you, I beseech you, I exhort you, I entreat you, I encourage you. Probably my words would be, come on, little buddy. Come on, little buddy, it's time. But the point is that Christianity is not passive. We have created a passivity in Western Christianity that is actually not scriptural. And it's the, we didn't mean to. We actually didn't mean to. But we evangelists, and I include myself in that, we 
we so emphasize the fact that you it is by faith alone in Christ. Christ did it all. Christ paid it all. You come through the door by faith. That once we come through the door, we expect nothing. So we are just forgiven. So you ask people, if you took a poll uh, for modern Christians in America, so what are you doing till Jesus comes again or what are you doing till your death? Just trying to stay out of sin. <laughs> Just uh, trying to be, trying to, trying to what? Well, there's, there's no elegant uh, corporate answer. Like God is now transforming us into his image and the process has already begun. Now, if you need room in elevators, you just answer that way when someone asks, so what are you up to these days? Just say, becoming like God. How about yourself? <laughs> what a great, hairy, audacious goal. But the Bible teaches that and it's really spelled out clearly in, Eph in Ephesians where a new humanity has begun called Christians. This new humanity is birthed at the belief in Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. And even though the world won't change until he comes again, even though uh, new creation won't happen until he comes again, already in advance... His tribe of people have begun to change. Now, I know that sounds cultic, but either I'm on drugs or this is what the Bible teaches. And this is why we need to realize this is exactly what the Bible teaches. Every single epistle of the apostles, John, Peter, Sermon on the Mount, all teach this new transforming image that begins to happen, and it looks like specific acts of love that begin to emerge through you and me. But the key right here at the start is to realize that you are response-able, that you are able to respond. As long as you say, well, I'm just a helpless leaf blowing in the wind. If God doesn't do it, I can't do it. I guess I'll just never change. And No, no, no. The Bible, why else would God give commands? Even the command to love your neighbor as yourself or to love God. Why else would? It's because we, we are response-able. We're able to respond. And it's just, that's all we do. So we are the little spark in the engine. The rest of the engine is the power of God and all that God's doing. All we do is say three little words. Yes. We respond to what he's done and is doing. And the good news is I'm not trapped. I'm not a victim. It's a popular word today. You are not trapped. You are not a victim to your heritage. Well, you know, all of the people in my ethnicity, we all are this way. No, you're not. Well, you know, everybody that's like me in my personality profile uh, is this way. 
That's just what the Enneagram says. No, you're not. You become someone new. Well, you know that everyone who has my 23andMe DNA <laughs> is like this. I get the idea that we need to do all these things, and I think the Enneagram is a wonderful, elegant tool. All these things are wonderful tools to say, yeah, this is who you are, and this is what you need to know, but it's without Christ. Once Christ begins to come and moves into the moment, you don't have to be an angry person because your mother was angry. You can actually love your husband in that moment and make a new decision. We're not trapped. Listen, you have a choice. God created man and woman. Remember Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Let us make man in our image in our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea. Ruling is having choices about creation and how we rule over creation. Male and female, he created them. So we were given the possibility of choice by God. Then we exercised our choice poorly in the Garden of Eden. God says, eat of the thousands of trees, they're all yours. Just don't eat that one. So we had a thousand choices. God celebrates your choice. But sometimes we make bad choices, don't we? And our forebears made a bad choice there in the garden. But guess what? God is bound to determine that you will look like him. And it's going to involve your choice. Over and over again. Choices when people hurt you. Choices during trials and difficulties and sicknesses. Choices when, uh, when you need to forgive. Choices when kindness is asked of you. Choices after choices. And the power is there. The presence is there. And your choice matters. Listen to the words of C.S. Lewis. I won't read you the entire quote, although I think it is amazing. But uh, I'll just give you one sentence. Every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses into something a little different than it was before. And he goes on to say that this is the process of transformation and that we are either becoming more and more like a heavenly creature or more and more like a hellish creature based on these incremental choices. So choices matter. The other day I was given the privilege, my sons were out on a radio tour and that's where I get to move in and be bapa and be with my grandkids because the dads are gone and I'm kind of can be a surrogate dad. And uh, so I was given the responsibility of picking my uh, junior high grandson, uh, Jet, up from school. And it's bapa time! And so I said, said Jet, what do you want to do? I know, let's go to JoJo's Ice Cream. Now, JoJo's Ice Cream is this little niche, high-end, organic ice cream that's just off the charts. And, and, and he just, in Encinitas uh, and the Lumberyard, and, and, and so he, he says, yeah, yeah. So we drive there, and we walk in, 
And there's 16 different flavors. They're not like a million. There's just, all they need is 16 because they're really amazing. And, uh, and I said, so what do you want? You want nibby chocolate? You want peanut butter? You want this new pumpkin thing going on here? What, what are you thinking? And he says, well, I'm thinking uh, peanut butter. And I said, that's it? Is that your only choice? And he looks at me like, I have another choice. I said, it's choices, Jet. And he says, yeah, mud pie and peanut butter. I said, is that it? Are you you just going to have it in a cup? Are you going to And I'll have it in a homemade waffle cone. And I said, now we're choosing. That's a choice. Sorry, I did it to you, didn't I? (laughs) So what does God do? I think God loves the choices that we make. Your choice is the one part of the universe he doesn't rule. You give it back to him freely. When you make a choice in his will, it's the one part of the universe he does not rule until you say yes to him in that sphere and you make the choice. And God just like, yes! It's a choice of love. It's a choice for you to love him in an act of love towards someone else. And those choices happen and happen and happen and happen. Our world tells us that the spiritual person is the one that just has all these warm feelings about people in God that that's a spiritual person. I just, I just feel it. I just, oh. No, a spiritual person chooses and acts. And until it's a tangible, physical act that happens in God's world, it's not spiritual. It's just potentially amazing until we make that choice. Jesus said, the wise man builds his house on What? the rock, which means that he says, until that time, you just have all of the words of Jesus, yada, 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 you know, the, the, the school teacher in the Peanuts cartoon, do you remember? Until then, it's just, and that's a house that's built on the sand. It's not spiritual. It looks spiritual, looks amazing, but it's only when we do it. And so Jesus applies that image to saying, you are to do the word of God, not just hear it. So secondly, transformation now, now that you know that your will is involved in this whole thing, that you are response-able, that transformation starts with faith in God's love. That's the way God designed it. Faith in God's love. Going back to the verse, if in view of God's Mercy. I urge you, in view of God's mercy. So going back to the anatomy diagram, you'll see in the diagram, there it is, right at the top. We are putting our faith in God's love, in all the manifestations of God's love to you, primarily, though, in the biggest manifestation, which is the cross of Jesus Christ, his great display of love for you. 
Now, here's something to note. The word is actually in the plural. Mercies. Did you know? It's a Hebraism, which means that this is the way the Hebrews talked about the mercy, or technically the word is compassion, of God. That is so complex, and it appears in so many different ways and manifestations that you have to use the plural because it's not just one mercy. Isn't that cool? It goes back to ice cream, all the choices and the flavors, that God's mercies are new, remember, every morning. So he says, in view of God's mercies, and the word, as I said, is probably best translated compassions, and I like compassions because compassion, if you're compassionate towards me, it, then you understand me, don't you? You, you? you know, someone that's a drill sergeant is not compassionate. <laughs> but God's compassion understands like, you know, Mark, this is what I want you to do, but I understand you're an idiot. So I, I understand that you're weak. I understand that you've been through this. I understand compassion enters into my world, right? There's, there's an empathy that's in compassion, so he loves you, understanding you. This was the first word that we studied last week in Exodus 34, where God revealed himself to Moses, and he saw the glory of God. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate. First word out of God's mouth to self-describe himself. And he's described in Psalm 103 as the father of compassion. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says the same thing, that he's the father of compassion. Is that how you picture God? Is that how you've thought of God? As an understanding, merciful, compassionate God. Well, moving quickly, you realize Paul now is building his argument based on everything he's said in Romans and the biggest passage in Romans about the mercy and love of God is in Romans 8, where Paul says, what then shall we say in response to this? Here's the compassion of love of God. If God is for us, who can be against us? Who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously, meaning with Undeserved love, give us all things. Wow. And then he gives us the argument in verse 35, and who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And he gives us this long list that some of these things you've already experienced in your life. Shall trouble? No, he loves me. Shall hardship? No, he loves me. Shall persecution? No, he loves me. Famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? No, he loves me. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced. And then he gives this fabulous list. You can almost wrap it. Listen to it. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither the present nor the future or, or powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. In view of that mercy, in view of that, now we respond 
and we believe in God's love. It's impossible to put the Christian life that I'm describing, this lifestyle, into practice without viewing the cross. So it's not the cross now we talk about transformation or sanctification. No, we go deeper into the cross. And anybody who tells you that they've moved on, I get that a lot. You know, they'll come to me and say, Pastor, I love your church because you're always talking about the love of God and it's such a, such a cool concept. And I can feel them patting me on the head. You know, but I've moved on to the deeper things of reform theology and so now uh, you're not going to see my face anymore. I've moved on to the deeper things of eschatology, the end times, and you're not going to see my face anymore. I've moved on to the, the deeper things of whatever, the, you know, and I just always want to say those are great things, but if you move beyond the cross, you move too far because maturity goes deeper and deeper into the mercies of God and gazing into his love. And that's how we decide to say yes to love other people because I saw his love. Yeah, and we just stare at it. We grow in it. When you're studying the Bible, when you're praying, when you're, when you're loving someone, you're, Jesus said, inasmuch as you did it to the least of these, you did it unto me. You're staring at Jesus' love. Even in the act of love, we grow deeper and deeper into this loving, loving God. When we lived on the East Coast for a short stint, I had the privilege of going out on a yacht out of Salem Harbor. And uh, Salem Harbor is this beautiful, beautiful harbor with all these old colonial mansions all around the shore of the harbor. And as we were ending the day and sailing back in, uh, he gave me the privilege of standing behind the wheel and steering this great ship, you know. And he gave me these instructions. And he said, uh, you want to align yourself with the Fort Pickering Lighthouse and the Derby Wharf House, Wharf Lighthouse. You got to line those two things up. Go back to the last slide. Line those two things up, kind of triangulate. So you, you pull those two things together. And he says, you'll steer clear of the rocks on the left and the rocks on the right. I said, that's a good idea. So I'm just, okay, I got my eyes glued. I just, you know, keep these things in line. Now you can go to the next slide. And so we made it back safely as I'm staring. That, and that became a picture of me for the cross of Jesus Christ. It keeps me from the pitfalls to the left and the right. And in this context, the pitfall on the left is lazy Christianity. That, oh, I can't do nothing, and I'm just going to arrive in heaven, just a wicked sinner, and nothing's ever going to change and everything. Um, no, 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 no. That's automatism, that, that you have nothing to do with it. That, that, that's not true. Actually, you do get to say yes to the Spirit of God and yes to the Word of God. On the other hand, the other rocks are the try-harder religion. Please don't hear me saying that. That's a weight too heavy for me to bear. This is not a try-harder. This is a trust more <laughs> in, in the cross of Jesus Christ. By the way, if you look at the next slide, there was a period in my life that I didn't mention last service 
where we had handed the church off that we had planted most recently on the East Coast, and we were waiting for instructions from God <laughs> that eventually took us back to this church. We were waiting, and during that time, um, we went to an Anglican Episcopal church, very different from our church. You know, it's, it's a lot of ritual and liturgy, and, um, and it was really challenging for me because you go with the Book of Common Prayer in one hand and the hymnal in the other, and you're watching all the other people to see when you stand up, sit down, fight, 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 and when you, you know, because you kneel, you stand up, you sing, you just sit down, and you don't want to be the guy that didn't know what to do, you know, and so it's game on, full on, you know, okay. But when it came to going forward and taking communion, the first time I did that, something happened to me, and I, I started crying as I thought of what Jesus did for me. And so from that point on, every Sunday, I did this self-talk where I'd say, don't look at the cross. Don't look at the cross. You're going to cry. <laughs> don't look at the cross. You're going to cry. <laughs> but my friends, look at the cross. Look at the cross and let that transform you day by day by day. Secondly, transformation involves a sacrifice, the offer of your body. Are you there? Okay, listen to this. To offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, this is your spiritual act of worship. So the language here is clear. It's Jewish temple language. He uses the word offer, which you can go back, and it's all throughout the Old Testament about the sacrifices. And he says, for you and I now to become the sacrifice. Christ was the great sacrifice, the once and for all sin, for all sin, but now we are the living sacrifices in response to the great sacrifice. The sacrificial system goes on, not in a temple, you are the temple, not in the law, you now by the Spirit have the law written upon your heart and the Spirit there is an umpire coaching you and saying, ball, strike, ball, strike, don't do that, do this, you know, and... He's saying now the transforming part is where you offer your bodies. Time and space, you live in time and space, earthy, uh, physical, concrete world, and that's where true spirituality is. It's not what I expected Paul to say. I expected Paul to say, offer your hearts, because that's the language we, we always like to use when we're, we're messing up. And we say, I know that that's wrong, but God knows my heart. Like, whoa, that's like the spiritual trump card. <laughs> I, know, I know I just held up three banks, but God knows. God knows my heart. Wow, okay. You played the big card. He knows your heart. He doesn't just want your heart. He wants your hand that held the gun when you held up the banks. He wants that to be offered to He wants your brain that thought and, and schemed about robbing the banks. He wants your rear end that sat in the car driving to the bank. 
he wants your body. Isn't that weird that he uses that language? Because it just feels so crass. It's like, ooh, bodies, ah. But the body is where we sin and where we love. It's the only way we love is through our bodies. And so he asks us to give us, give him our physicality. It's almost like you could say that he somatizes instead of spiritualizes. Soma is the word for bodies. And we tend to spiritualize everything. The Lord knows my heart and my spirit. I felt this. You know, and all we tend to spiritualize everything. And then nobody knows. But he somatizes it. It makes it very earthy, concrete, that you actually know who's spiritual by acts of love. There's other language that Paul uses in other passages besides the sacrificial system of offer. One of the languages you might prefer more, and that is clothing. Twice, in Ephesians and Colossians, he says, put off the old self, put on the new self. In Colossians, he says, um, for us to put on, clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness. And that's kind of a cool metaphor, isn't it? Clothing, maybe the sacrificial system doesn't relate to you. And so you just think of clothing. When, when do you change your clothing? Well, it's either uh, dirty or uh, stinky or you, you've worn it too long. It just needs to be washed. Or you just decided, it's just not my color. <laughs> or it's, it, it's too small, it's too big. Whatever reason, you take it off and you put on something that looks better on you that's new, right? So he uses that language to put off the way you used to live because you're transforming and by your will decide to trust in him and put on something new. Another language that he uses, another metaphor, is uh, execution. And this is uh, pretty gory, but uh, he just says, put it to death. It's not murder. He doesn't say kill it. He just says, execute it. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, which is idolatry. But again, it still has to do with the body. Now, the way he came up with this word of to offer living sacrifices goes back to what he said earlier in chapter 6, where in chapter 6 we read, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey. Can we go to Romans chapter 6? Yeah, move on to the next slide. I want them to be able to see what I'm seeing. Are you saying that there's no Romans 6 slide person? There's... there's, (laughs) Okay. Um, any rate, he says, do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of, righteous, of unrighteousness or wickedness, but offer yourselves to God. Offer the parts of your body. So it's your graphic earthly parts. So now think of it. And this is where it becomes really, really practical and helpful. What part of your body tends to not cooperate with the kingdom of God? 
obviously your brain, your stinking thinking. So what if you begin to offer your brain to God? Well, that sounds weird. You know, I'm just, I'm just going to give him my heart. No, he wants your thinking. What do you do with your hands? What are you, oh, here's a big one. What do you do with your tongue, your words? Have you ever had a little nudge from God that says, and when you're about to say something? Oh, my gosh. If I had a dollar for every time that happened... You know, I'm in the moment, and, and, and I feel this little, and, and don't, 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 don't say it. And I'm just thinking, yeah, that's not a big deal. And, and no, 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 don't say it. You know, it's just, well, it's just, it's, everybody's talking. No, 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 don't say it. And, 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 and then you go ahead and say it. And it's kind of like, oh, you said it. <laughs> and there's this big negativity. And you said it because you wanted to be cool or just you wanted to be and conform like everybody else. And you just think, oh, it's not what I wanted to say. I could have, oh. So to offer the parts of our body to Christ. And this becomes ultimate surrender. And folks, it's ultimate worship. John Stott said this, no worship is pleasing to God which is purely inward and mystical. It must express itself in a concrete act of service performed in our bodies. Wow. So what Paul is bringing us to here is true worship. And he closes by saying, this is your logical, this is your true and proper worship. This is what you were meant for. This is where things come alive. The word proper is logikos, which is the word from which we get our logic or reason. And uh, this was a popular word among the Stoics of Paul's day. And Epictetus says this about a stoic trying to achieve what we were created for. He says, uh, a nightingale, if I wanted, to, if I were a nightingale, I would, I would do what was proper for a nightingale. If I was a swan, I'd do what's proper for a swan. In fact, I am logikos, which means I am a reasonable being, so I must praise God in that way. And the most logical thing you can ever, ever, ever do is do what you were created for, which is to worship God with your body in time and space. There it is. And to be set free in that way. So as I bring this to a close, I can have the, go to the next slide. That's what we want to be. Just, hey God, I'm all in. You're transforming me, and I'm all in, in very practical So, years ago when I was studying this very concept, I thought, oh my gosh, I got to do something in real time, real space. And so I got in my car and drove from Boston up to New Hampshire, and I went hiking into the White Mountains, and I found a big slab of rock that looked like an altar. 
And I just climbed up on it and I laid on it like I was a sacrificed lamb or something laying on this altar. And I said, God, I'm just yours. Just everything is yours, everything. And, and I felt like the spirit responded and said, well, thank you. But now what I'd like you to do is get back into your car <laughs> and go apologize to that person. Love me by saying, I'm sorry. I'd like you to go back in your car and be kind to that person that irritates living daylights out of you and be patient with them. I'd like you to go back and love your wife in this way. Clean the house. That's spiritual. You see the difference. So I, I got in my car and I drove back to Boston to become a person of love. And the person that stood out the most in my life was someone that really had wronged me. And I, I got up every morning and I thought about this person. Like, how could they do that? How could they do that? And I would, what do I do with that? And it was an opportunity for transformation. So I took the passage and said, you know what, God, I offer my, my heart and my brain to you. And in prayer, I forgive them again, and I pray a blessing on them. You know, the first time I did that, I thought, oh, that, you're praying a blessing on evil. You're praying a breath. You know, I said, but, but the Bible says, bless and curse not. So every morning, I would just get up, pray forgiveness and a blessing. And I thought, wow, I'm going to do this 70 times 7, 490 times before this begins to work. But you know the story. Gradually, it was every other morning. Gradually, it was every third morning. Gradually, it was gone as I somatized, as I put into the physical realm what it meant to do an act of love. And God transforms us. Let's stand and pray. Lord, we thank you this morning that we can study your holy word and be encouraged for what you're doing in our lives, that it is possible for you to make us new people and to change us from the inside out. I pray for everyone here, my brothers and sisters, that if, as they think about one specific thing or two or three, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and encourage each one of us of what would be an effective act of love and that you would give us the power to decide. And God, we pray that the world increasingly would see a church that is not only speaking about the cross and speaking about what's right and wrong, but that we would be the people who are living love. And that in our generation, in our time, there would be a, an awakening and a revival that the Roman Empire saw as people see Christians increasingly looking like you. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Let's just sing a chorus together. 
Thanks for listening this week. If you're looking for ways to serve, give, or get connected, please visit our website, northcoastcalvary.org.